Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And on this Friday morning, May 26th, the first day of the Memorial Day weekend, welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable, our chance to round up the big news of the week from Washington with three top political reporters. Well, we started off the week on the brink of a fiscal cliff, and we uh, sort of are still in the same spot, but we're there now with a sense of optimism that we might be getting close to a deal. In fact, Republican members of Congress are feeling so positive about the signs of progress that they went home for the weekend. And President Biden today, later today, goes off to Camp David for the weekend. Meanwhile, the 2024 Republican primary got more crowded this week with two more candidates jumping into the race, Tim Scott of South Carolina, with a very traditional, upbeat announcement, and Ron DeSantis of Florida with anything but a traditional announcement. In other news, Donald Trump was told he's going to have to take time out from the primary next March to appear in a New York courtroom, and the longest prison term yet for the January 6th insurrection was handed out to the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. And here today... To put it all in perspective for us, our Blue Ribbon panel, Lynn Sweet, longtime friend, a Washington bureau chief and columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Hello, Lynn. Good morning. Good to have you with us. And Philip Bump, columnist for the Washington Post, author of the How to Read This Chart newsletter and author of his great new book, The Aftermath. Uh, Hi, Philip. Good morning. And Scott Wong back again with us, senior congressional reporter, for NBC News. Hello, Scott. Good morning, Bill. So, Scott, start us off. You know, we got a lot of fun stuff we can talk about. Let's start with the serious stuff, this fiscal crisis looming over the debt ceiling. Uh, The headline I've got right in front of me, the New York Times this morning, lawmakers near a deal to increase the debt ceiling. Almost (laughs) word for word, the same headline in the Washington Post. Is that the case? Uh... Does it look like we're going to avoid fiscal disaster? Hard to say at this point, given the very, very short timeline. Uh, Negotiators have felt optimism at times and pessimism at times. Today, it seems like optimism is is the word for the day. But, you know, uh, Garrett Graves, the congressman from Louisiana who's been negotiating for the Republicans, he's uh, Kevin McCarthy's uh, appointed uh, negotiator. He came out of meetings yesterday out of the speaker's suite and said progress has been slow. He said there's still a lot of hangups. Um, he says the White House is still not giving anything on work requirements or keeping an open mind about work requirements that they want to impose. And so, you know, depending on the hour, it's it's like things are up or down. But there are 
you know, a framework is coming into better view, uh, you know, reporting that we have and, and others like the Washington Post uh, say that these negotiators are closing in on something that would be a two year extension of the debt ceiling that would push us, uh, you know, past the the 2024 election, which is something that uh, both sides, I think, have an interest of doing. Um, you know, there still seems to be uh, a disagreement over um, spending levels. The White House's position uh, at first was, you know, let's not negotiate anything on the debt ceiling. Let's just pass a clean bill. But now they're saying, and Democrats on Capitol Hill are saying they're okay with spending freezes at current levels. Republicans want to go, obviously, much further. Uh, you know, they want uh, to cut spending for a number of years, it likely will be tied to to the number of years that we extend the debt ceiling. So it could mm-hmm. be two years. And so these are some of the the issues. And again, a lot of balls are up in the air. As negotiators like to say, nothing is agreed to. Uh, you know, there's there's no deal until everything yeah. is agreed to. And that's very much the situation that we're in. Well, Lynn, one of the big questions, I think you and I were both in the briefing room covering the White House under President Obama when he made a deal with John Boehner, who ended up not being able to deliver, he, Boehner, on the deal because his caucus wouldn't go along with it. Um, So here's here's Matt Gaetz from Florida this week, uh, by the way, just, I think, being very honest about where he and some of the more conservative members of the caucus, the Freedom Caucus, are coming from. I think my conservative colleagues don't feel like we should negotiate with our hostage. <laughs> Almost admitting that they've got the Democrats of the nation taking them hostage. So, Lynn, the question I have, do we believe that McCarthy can even deliver on a deal with that caucus? Uh, he could deliver if he gets Democratic votes Ha-ha. to get to 218, which is what I think will happen in the end. Mm. Uh, the Now and then we have votes in the House where there are strange bedfellows that the extreme left, think of the squad, plus their allies, more than four, usually maybe could be 10 or so people, 10 to 12, plus uh, the uh, Matt Getz faction of the wing, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Trumpist, the, the Trumpiest Trumpists, they could vote no, but there will still be plenty of members to get to 218. Now, while that wouldn't, uh, while Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries has criticism coming him from his left flank, it doesn't threaten his status as a leader. Huh. The difference is that we all know of the 15 rounds of voting it took to make Kevin McCarthy the speaker, uh, his tenure could be threatened by one person calling a question about his leadership. So whatever deal he makes, he will probably just factor in that he will lose a certain number of votes, but somehow has to have the agreement that no one is going to topple him as a result of this deal. So what you're saying, Lynn, is that he might be able to uh, deliver a deal with some Democratic votes, but in the process jeopardize or maybe lose his speakership. Yeah, I, I don't think we're at the point of lose because 
If there was an alternative to Kevin McCarthy, we would have known it. The vote to make him speaker was just a few months ago, and no one surfaced who could put it together. So he, it, it won't be uh, the the advantage to both parties will be to move on, and the usual thing that happens is that both sides claim victory. But this will be harder for the Democrats if there are any kind of beefed up work requirements put out there for people who get benefits from the social safety net. That's the reason, by the way, when at the White House briefing this week and talking about the debt ceiling, uh, Press Secretary Corrine put on the uh, put on the screen a graphic showing about five members of the uh, Trump wing of the House, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, the amount of PPP loans they got and the amount that was forgiven. <laughs> Point made? <laughs> Point made. Well, Philip, you're a student of history. I mean, the overriding question to me is, why do we go through this charade or this you know, drama uh, every year, at least every year when a Democrat's in the White House? Um, let, me, let me set you up by playing a little clip from Congressman Jamie Raskin on the floor of the House um, yesterday, I believe it was, saying... There is an alternative. Here he is. Donald Trump has issued the order, default, crash the economy, lose nine or 10 million jobs. So I want to introduce the mega Republicans who have split today, but who increased the debt ceiling three times under Donald Trump, who gave us a quarter of all the debt of the United States between George Washington and Joe Biden. I want to introduce them to the Constitution of the United States. The validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. Well, Philip, 14th Amendment's pretty clear, isn't it? So why are we doing all of this? Yeah, well, I mean, essentially the 14th Amendment in this context sets up a contrast between what the what the president is allowed to do and isn't allowed to do, right? There's a, there's a law saying do one thing and the Constitution saying do another thing. And the question is the extent to which the White House wants to uh, try and try and negotiate between those two things and potentially have the Supreme Court have to, to evaluate uh, the White House's uh, constitutional assessment. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there is a, a famous incident which occurred, I believe, at the end of 2010, in which I believe it was Mark Ambender, then working for the National Journal, said to President Obama, hey, you know, couldn't the Republicans try and use the debt ceiling as leverage? And Obama was like, what are you talking about? Like, they're not going to, no, no one's going to like mess with the debt ceiling as a, as a way to try and extract <laughs> concessions. And then instantaneously, that's what happened. And it's established this new era in which the debt ceiling does become this point of pressure. And essentially, that's the only thing it does. It doesn't control the debt at all. You know, the, the, the debt ceiling responds to the debt. The debt doesn't respond to the debt ceiling. And so what we have then is we have this circumstance in which Republicans are willing to use the debt ceiling as a point of leverage and have done so when it is to their advantage. As you said, didn't do so when Donald Trump was president. There wasn't a debt ceiling in place for most of the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, but but the really important thing about this current negotiation is that the dynamic has changed. When it first happened uh, over a decade ago, essentially, when you talk to Americans and told them about it, they said that the Republicans were more to blame if, if the country were going into, into default. Uh, mm. The most recent polling that I've seen is from Fox News, which has good polls and says that they are people are slightly more likely to say that Joe Biden is to blame if the country goes into default at this point. And that's it. That's the ballgame. From now on, this is what we can expect especially because the White House has agreed to, you know, 
to to engage in these negotiations. Obviously, one can understand why they were, were doing so, but it, it's hard to see how you walk back from whenever people want to use this as a point of pressure, they'll use it as a point of pressure. Yeah, you know, on that point, Scott, and I promise, last question on the debt ceiling, but uh, it does seem to me that the Republicans in the House are winning the message war uh, in this little battle. I mean, they've been pretty consistent in what they want, and uh, there's been some criticism among Democrats that President Biden has not used uh, the bully pulpit, right, or an address from the Oval Office or something, uh, or even just the podium at the White House to make clear, you know, what his position, what the Democratic position is. Would you agree? Well, that's right. Uh, they The Republicans are winning the me- messaging war because Democrats on Capitol Hill are admitting that. Uh, and so, you know, the ones that I spoke to, both uh, on background and, and even some on the record now, uh, are saying that the president needs to be out there a lot more. He needs to be hammering home the Democratic message. Uh, here's the problem with that. The Democratic message has shifted quite a bit since we started this back in February. Uh, the original Democratic message was from President Biden consistently that Democrats do not negotiate on the debt ceiling, uh, that Republicans are trying to hold the ho- you know hostage the economy. And what happened is he didn't sit down with Kevin McCarthy for a number of months under that premise. Uh, here we are, fast forward a few months later, and Shalonda Young, the budget director over at the White House, is sh- shuttling back and forth in these negotiations, negotiating on the debt ceiling. And so uh, that has completely undermined the original argument from the White House. Uh, it also allowed Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans uh, you know, a chance to say that President Biden has been asleep at the wheel all these months and should have been at the table from the very beginning. Uh, and what Kevin McCarthy and the Re- Republicans are doing is they're holding a half an hour press conference at the White House. Then uh, a few minutes later, they hold a, a half an hour press conference with reporters on Capitol Hill. They are flooding the zone with their message. Meanwhile, uh, it's true. We have not really seen President Biden that much uh, after his trip to Japan. Uh, and he has not really deputized some of his negotiators to speak to the press. They're quiet when they come and negotiate in the Capitol. And so that has really allowed Republicans to, to hammer home their message. And only now are Democrats starting to, uh, you know, push back and, and not necessarily from the White House, but on Capitol Hill itself with uh, with some of these more aggressive efforts to push back on Kevin McCarthy, including these a series of, of nearly 91 minute speeches that House Democrats did on the House floor uh, yesterday as as the House was being dismissed for the Memorial Day weekend, uh, just really trying to hammer home that it is Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, leading the Republican Party and Kevin McCarthy around in trying to hold hostage uh, the United States economy. Uh, I just want to make clear that what you said was 90 members gave one-minute speeches, right? Yeah, nine, nine, close to 9-0, correct. No, nine zero members, one-minute speeches. Well, speaking, um, let's just fingers crossed that uh, 
uh, progress continues and there is a deal um, when we come back after the Memorial Day weekend. But speaking of messaging, Lynn, you and I have seen many, many presidential announcements uh, from coast to coast. Um, have you ever seen a worse one than we saw this week, Wednesday evening from Ron DeSantis? Surely, any of us? you know, we will all agree on that because it it. it it was bad in concept and terrible in execution. <laughs> there, the even the thought that you would do this only as a favor, it it would really be to uh, to Musk, the owner of Twitter. Uh, you sacrifice, even if things had gone perfectly, you sacrificed a big audience that would have been covered by all the cables and would have allowed a video to be used of perhaps a crowd cheering you on somewhere at, at a big rally. The, so, so as we dissect this, either you do something that's elegant and simple uh, and you execute it, t- Trump's ride down that golden staircase, or you do something inspiring. Kamala Harris announced in Oakland with thousands of people cheering her on, or you are Barack Obama and you go to the old capital in Springfield, rich in symbolism from Abraham Lincoln until the then present in this two thousand in that 2008 presidential race in a town where Obama worked as a state senator, uh, or you go onto an audio-only outlet that most people wouldn't easily find or would have to sign up for and basically share the stage with other people than yourself. Now, who thought that was a good idea even (laughs) before we get to the part of technically did Elon Musk have the technology to pull this off? And the answer was no. So, Philip, it is surprising, right? I mean, here it was this was billed as the most competent governor in the nation sitting down with the most competent the ex- chief executive, right, a businessman in the nation. What could possibly go wrong, Philip? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 not sure who referred to Elon Musk as particularly competent in the recent months here. So I, well, I, I'd contest that. But yeah. yeah, I mean, look, Ron DeSantis. The the reason that he has has increasingly fallen behind Donald Trump in the past couple of months is in part because of concerns about his ability to actually play on the big stage, right? After his Ukraine comments to Tucker Carlson went south on him uh, in a yeah. way that somehow he didn't anticipate. And also that he's kind of a, a he's kind of strange and he's, he's you know, he doesn't interact well with people, right? And so if those are the two things you're seeking to combat, to then go on to this, you know, not only was it a technically glitchy uh, 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 pod, you know, uh, recording uh, with this Twitter spaces, but it's just boring. Right. You know, it's just it's just this boring drudge of a conversation between DeSantis and these random people, you know, people like Chris Rufo, who's this extremist on things like, you know, critical race theory and stuff like this. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, Dana Loesch, who used to host a TV show associated with the NRA, you know, I mean, like just just these 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 people who are very much at, at the outliers in the political conversation. And they're just having these dry conversations about sort of fringy topics. It's just, you know, and then on top of that, to have the glitches that then combined with a a, a very flawed rollout of his website, you know, that they were 
Uh, he released this video after the Twitter thing that had like crummy audio and was kind of shaky. Like all of these things compiled to give mm-hmm. this presentation of someone who wasn't ready to 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 launch, you know, despite being able to pick the day. Uh, and I think probably in that sense, beyond just the Twitter glitchiness, did himself uh, no favors whatsoever. Right. Uh, you did mention on one issue part of the, of course, after um, the uh, the Twitter disaster, uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, went on Fox News. Fox broadcast ahead of time. You can count on us. We're not going to crash. Come on, if you want to see Ron DeSantis, here's the place to see him. Um, uh, and Scott, he is asked again about this pesky question uh, that tripped him up on Tucker Carlson. Trey Gowdy, former congressman, whom you know, of course, interviewed, I'm sure, um, asked a question about Ukraine. And here is Ron DeSantis, who still doesn't seem to have an answer. How would you address the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine on day one of a Ron DeSantis presidency? Well, first, I think what we need to do is recognize that our our military uh, has become politicized. Uh, You talk about gender ideology. You talk about global warming that they're somehow concerned. And that's not the military that I served in. Look, in terms of what's going on over in Eastern Europe, um, you know, I'd like to see a a settlement of this. There it is. (laughs) Uh, So, Scott, maybe because of that. Um, even in Congress, DeSantis doesn't seem to be too good at rounding up Republican members of Congress to to support his campaign. Yeah, this has been a a big discussion on Capitol Hill uh, for the the last several weeks. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I think, only has four, a handful of Republican endorsements compared to Trump, who who has dozens and dozens. That's probably to be expected, given that Trump is the front runner, the former president. Uh, a lot of lawmakers still fear Trump, and mm-hmm. uh, he, Trump is still enormously popular back home in in a lot of their districts. And so, I think some of these lawmakers are just reading the tea leaves and and voting uh, or endorsing according to their constituency, which is probably politically smart. Um, but we did not see any new endorsements being rolled out. I do know that behind the scenes, there are a handful of folks. They, they did uh, sponsor uh, a, an event with DeSantis on Capitol Hill uh, a number of weeks ago. Uh, he does have a sort of a core group of, of folks who are with him and advising him and uh, are appearing at events, uh, you know, in other states. I imagine that we will start to see some endorsements trickle out as he travels to some of these uh, important key states, but it, it was not uh, a, a big splashy list of endorsements on the day of his launch, which I think surprised quite a few people. Exactly. Yeah. And there was another candidate who stepped up to the plate and then actually announced that he is running, of course, and that is Tim Tim. Tim Scott of South Carolina with a much more traditional launch. Uh, Let's get into that and some of the other um, people who are out there looking at 2024, either in yet or likely to come in soon. We'll do that after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Philip Bump, and Scott Wong. Today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. You know, they're the union members that most of us meet most often in our daily lives. 
the people who work at our great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's, uh, those who take care of us in our big grocery chains that are like Giant and Safeway, uh, the people who uh, handle our chemical plants, cannabis plants, and meat and poultry processing plants around the country, all on the front lines serving America, serving us every day. We appreciate their good work and thank them for their support, longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. And check out, ask you to check out their website at ufcw, ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back on today's podcast, uh, talking politics now with today's panel. Scott Wong joins us from NBC News, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, and Lynn Sweet from the Chicago Sun-Times. Lynn Sweet in South Carolina. It was uh, Tim Scott who started out his rally there with, uh, with a big crowd in South Carolina by, um, I don't know, reminded me a little bit about Howard Dean. Here he is. Are you proud to be an American? I'm so proud to be an American. I hope you are. Are you proud to be an American? I, I can't hear you. I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Oh, yeah. So uh, a little different than uh, Ron, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Lynn, what do we think? Is it, uh, Tim Scott off to a good start, and does he have a chance? Off to a good start, yes. He has an uphill battle. Uh, doesn't take a lot of political analysis uh, to know that. Uh, he also has uh, an eroded home field advantage in South Carolina, since Nikki Haley, the former governor in that state, is also running in the early primary state. But what he has is an upbeat message, which takes her away from some of the gloom and doom of Trump and DeSantis. So I guess there's a question of how badly Republican primary voters want somebody who's new and if they'll coalesce around somebody. I think that's more of a threshold question as much as anything when you weigh the uh, Tim Scott candidacy. Uh, so you have Trump, you have uh, maybe Elsa Hutchinson, the former Arkansas governor, and, and Nikki Haley. Uh, the uh, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy running. So all those people will divide independent Republican primary voters, uh, swing voters, and people who might want to have second thoughts about backing Trump again. 
all that to say is it's just way too soon. But unlike Ron DeSantis, he did have a fairly standard, uh, reasonable lunch. And he had a speech that was upbeat and inspirational and was able to touch on points of what he was for and a vision of America that did not include the polarizing rhetoric that is just a standard part of so much of what DeSantis and Trump, the frontrunner, say. Well, I don't think we'll hear any polarizing rhetoric from Tim Scott, but we also haven't heard, um, Philip, any direct criticism from Tim Scott of Donald Trump. Here he was asked again that question um, right after he announced uh, he was on Fox, of course, with Harris Faulkner, uh, and she was trying to get him to take on Trump. Here's a little exchange. How do you take on someone who literally fights to fight? Donald Trump is a master at it. What's your game plan? My game plan is a simple one. I'm running for president of the United States, and I plan to be the nominee. So the good news is, for the American people, you will have a stark contrast between me and the rest of the field. Philip, how can you run against Trump without taking him on? Yeah, there's a there's a great Simpsons meme in which Ned Flanders' father is trying to figure out how to deal with his raucous son, and he says, "We've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas." Right? I mean, that's that is the state of the Republicans who are challenging Donald Trump. They have never tried to go after him, and they assume it's going to fail, so they don't. And so instead, what they do is they attack one another. Right? Nikki Haley on the day that Ron DeSantis announced came out with a video basically attacking Ron DeSantis. It's like, come on, like, you're not, li- yes, you're behind Ron DeSantis, right? And you're going to try and scramble past him. But it's, it's, it's frankly bizarre, right? Chris Christie has made noises about potentially getting in the race and playing that role. Uh, you know, he doesn't really have a shot at winning the nomination, in part because that's the whole problem, right? So Donald Trump is, you know, has the support of more than half of the people in, you know, most polls these days. But the, the contest is is viewed as there being, you know, we used to talk about all the lanes of the Republican primaries and, you know, evangelicals and moderates. There's two lanes. There's the Trump lane and there's the not Trump lane, right? <laughs> and the Trump lane, Donald Trump's got that. Ron DeSantis is also in the Trump lane right now. That's his problem. You know, he's, he's sort of dragging along behind Donald Trump. But all these people who want to see Trump lose are trying to figure out who's going to be the person, the one person to Lynn's point. We want one person. We want them in that non-Trump lane and we want to be able to compete. They don't know who that person's going to be. Ron DeSantis's flawed rollout makes it harder for him to consolidate that field. But at the same time, even once you get that person in that lane, you got to attack Trump. You've got to figure out how to take him down. And right now, the strategy for everyone who isn't Trump seems to be, let's hope that Donald Trump gets hit by lightning while he's playing golf. (laughs) That's a plan. <laughs> There's a plan. So Scott, is Tim uh, is Tim Scott uh, and maybe some of the others really running for vice president? <laughs> vice president, governor, uh, you know, <laughs> lieutenant governor. I don't know. Yeah, it 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 sure does seem that way. Um, one thing that Tim Scott uh, has right now is a lot of support in the United States Senate. And uh, you are hearing uh, he he got a couple big endorsements, Mike Rounds and, and John Thune, who is uh, the number two in Republican leadership behind McConnell. Uh, that's an indication of, of where the leadership sort of lies, because uh, they're certainly not with Donald Trump. They have concerns about Donald Trump and, and his electability. In fact, 
Uh, Bill Cassidy, a, a third Republican senator, uh, said Trump cannot win in swing states and cannot win the election uh, against Joe Biden. So there is a, a large concern about electability, especially given what happened in 2022 when Republicans in the Senate really had a great shot to win back control of, of the upper chamber and uh, failed miserably in large part due to Donald Trump's endorsements. And that was a point that Cassidy made himself uh, on CNN the other day. Uh, it's a sentiment, I think, that is is more widespread uh, behind the scenes among rank and file Senate Republicans. And so Tim Scott is a, a safe choice for, you know, for somebody to rally behind. They could say, oh, he, he has a great biography. He uh, is somebody I've worked with on committees. He's uh, he's Reagan-esque in, you know, in terms of that shining city on the hill message mm-hmm. to uh, to Republicans. Uh, you know, nobody has a bad thing to say about Tim Scott, uh, but nobody is also saying that Tim Scott can win this easily. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unlike Ted Cruz, uh, there are senators who really like Tim Scott, right? Ted, Ted's Cruz, Ted Cruz did not win any uh, popularity contest in the Senate, uh, as I recall, and probably still doesn't today. Um, switching from politics to uh, a very serious matter, this week we saw um, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, not only getting the longest sentence given to anyone involved in January 6th, uh, 18 years, but also uh, some very strong statements on the part of the judge, Judge Mehta, uh, that Stuart Rhodes was in fact uh, guilty of domestic terrorism uh, and, of course, seditious conspiracy for which he was charged, and that he represents a peril to our democracy. Lynn, this is a pretty strong message, right, that January 6th uh, is still real, is still with us, there's still more people to be sentenced, and that, that those who maybe still try to downplay January 6th are doing at their own peril. Uh, well, again, yes and no. Uh, if you believe that, you know, so... So there was also a second Oath Keeper that also got a uh, big sentence of 12 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is where in our society, seditious conspiracy just is not a charge uh, that is often used. So as in everything in these non-normalized times, I don't know, actually, if this sends a message to uh, a, a deterrence message to anyone. For this, this whole investigation of people responsible for violence and break-ins on January 6th is one of the largest law enforcement efforts being undertaken by the Department of Justice. The reality is that with President Trump going out there promising pardons for these people and saying no one did anything wrong and turning the FBI into a public enemy, well, I never discount. The effectiveness that former President Trump has in convincing people of his lies and putting that kind of uh, totally debunked, not true conversation into the uh, feeding it to his followers. But to the people who are of good mind and just want to follow what happened, fact based, yeah, Stuart Rose, who's the founder and leader of Oath Keepers. Got an 18-year sentence for his involvement in the activities leading up to January 6th. 
and, and just trying to keep Trump in power and overturn the election. Philip, how do you read it? I mean, doesn't this, particularly the statements on the part of the judge, make it more difficult for Donald Trump or even Ron DeSantis to say they would pardon um, the people who uh, who were guilty of instigating or taking part in violence on January 6th? Um, honestly, I, I don't know that it does. I mean, neither mm. Trump nor DeSantis has said that, you know, they're just going to offer a blanket pardon to everyone who's faced charges, uh, because obviously that would mean pardoning people like Stuart Rhodes and Enrique Tarrio from the Proud Boys. Uh, one of the things that we've seen with the rhetoric uh, that has been burbling on the right for some time about these folks is that they they tend to collapse a lot of these more violent actors, the people who are imprisoned waiting trial or who've already, you know, uh, confess to their crimes and, and are, are serving prison sentences, they they conflate those with the people who just sort of wandered into the Capitol and were like picking up flags and stuff, right? They do that intentionally, obviously. People like Julie Kelly, who's this right-wing person in conservative media, uh, go out of their way to suggest that, you know, these are political prisoners who are simply yeah, you know, being targeted yeah. by the Biden administration and just totally glossing over the fact these people who beat cops with flagpoles, right? right. That's intentional. They're, they're, they're trying to impugn Biden by suggesting that he he and his DOJ are unfairly targeting these poor, innocent people who just sort of were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one is saying Stuart Rhodes and Tario, although Kelly yesterday, this this woman, Julie Kelly yesterday was trying to say like, oh, you know, he was too hard on Stuart Rhodes, which I mean, come on. But, you know, no one is saying, hey, look, Stuart Rhodes and Enrique Tario should get a pass. They're totally innocent victims here. But what they are doing instead is they're saying, oh, these, you know, these people in this chorus singing the national anthem behind Donald Trump, they're just, you know, these political prisoners. It's like, no, they're in prison. And I looked at this last year. They're in prison for on various or in jail on very serious charges involving violence and, you know, being directly involved in what occurred that day. Uh, and I think that those people are the question mark. Are Trump and DeSantis saying those people should be allowed to go free? Because that's a whole different issue that I think remains to be adjudicated. Yeah. And finally, Scott, from your take, talking to these members on a day-to-day basis, uh, I didn't see anybody stand up after Stuart Rhodes was sentenced. I didn't even see Marjorie Taylor Greene stand up and say, no, this is unfair. He's a political prisoner. Is that kind of, um, you know, are they kind of walking away from that, those lines of um, defense, uh, as that Philip pointed out? I don't know that too many people were asked on Capitol Hill about Mm-hmm. This this week, and maybe that has something to do with it. I do know that Marjorie Taylor Greene has defended quite vociferously. Oh yeah, uh, a lot of these uh, January six, uh, you know, folks that were involved in January six uh, who are you know in in DC jails and other places around the country. She had you know to the point where she has called them political prisoners and and uh, stage rallies at the prisons and in their support and. Uh, she's probably one of their most vocal defenders. Um, you know, I do think that very quickly, I do think that this there is a, a deterrent factor here for people thinking about interfering with uh, not only the 2024 election coming up, but other elections as well. I mean, these these people have had their lives and their families' lives turned upside down. They have been in prison since uh, you know, since their arrest, their families obviously are uh, paying enormous legal fees. Uh, yes, some are propping them up as as heroes, but uh, you know, they these families have been uh, com- you know completely 
divided and are facing uh, you know financial ruin. And uh, I, I do think that <laughs> folks thinking about trying to do this in the future have to be taking that into consideration. Uh, and I thought it was uh, actually, if I may say, a public service on the part of the judge who who pointed out to Stuart Rhodes the idea. Uh, it's great to you, for you to be involved in the political process. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but the idea that you can turn to force and violence to get what you want if you don't win at the ballot box is just not acceptable in this country. It is totally un-American. Uh, it does amount to seditious conspiracy, and it will not be tolerated, and he showed that with that 18-year sentence. And with that, we wrap up the week, and thanks our panelists again for taking us through the big events of the week. Uh, thanks to Philip Bump and Scott Wong and Lynn Sweet. But before we let you go to uh, get to the barbecue and uh, enjoy the rest of your Memorial Day weekend, uh, what was, we always ask, what was the one story this week, whether you were something you were covering or not, that just kind of stopped you in your tracks and made you laugh or cry or just think about it? Uh, your favorite story of the week. Where do we start? Philip, can you start us off? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I will use the one. I, the, I would not be surprised if this were on someone else's list this week. But this, the, this story about the House Republican Caucus getting together and people bidding on Kevin McCarthy's used chapstick and Marjorie Taylor Greene emerging victorious with her one hundred thousand dollar bid for it. It's just, it's just so bizarre. And it's just even outside the context of the debt ceiling, it's, it's just a bad look. I mean, obviously, this isn't Marjorie Greene's personal one hundred thousand dollars, but it's just. Who wants that? First of all, right? like I would, I would not pay fifty cents for anyone else's used chapstick. You know, uh, it's just, it was just such a weird story to drop in the middle of this very contentious week uh, that I, that I'm almost surprised no one inside was like, hey, you know what? Let's table this for a month or two. Right? It was, it was just very strange. I thought using somebody else's chapstick is like using somebody else's toothbrush, right? You oh know? yeah, oh hundred like, percent. Yeah, you just don't do it. Uh, Scott, help us out. Your favorite story of the week. Well, I will uh, end where we began with the debt ceiling and, and hopefully a, a lighter story about the debt ceiling other than yeah. uh, good economic <laughs> catastrophe. Two of the negotiators, and we mentioned them earlier in the show, but two of the key negotiators in this are Garrett Graves, the Republican from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who happens to represent the very district, the home district of Shalonda Young, the OMB director, the White House budget director, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, President Biden's top uh, negotiator in these uh, in these debt talks. And so uh, while the negotiations have been very serious and somber and, and obviously dealing with a lot of important issues, uh, there has been some lightheartedness. And, and when when uh, Shalonda Young comes out of the, the speaker suite and talks to reporters. She doesn't say much, but she has uh, been saying some nice things about Garrett Graves. And apparently there's a, a, a competition as to who uh, cooks a better gumbo uh, of the two Louisianans. And so, uh, you know, perhaps there is is hope here in the humanity behind some of these debt negotiations. We can get a gumbo deal here, huh? <laughs> uh, thank you, Scott. And and Lynn, what uh, what caught your attention this week? Well, it's a story that I worked on yesterday, and you could read it at oh. suntimes.com, whereby go. the Biden administration unveiled a first-ever 
sweeping and comprehensive national strategy to combat rising anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. It, it touches on all parts of federal government. It asks uh, voluntary things for entities to do, including the sports leagues. Uh, there is a big component of dealing with hate speech and conspiracy theories being on various social media platforms and how to deal with it. And the uh, rollout brought out a figure that is striking, that G- American Jews make up 6% of the population, but hate crimes against Jews are, 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 are overwhelming. Hate, hate crimes that are committed in this nation are overwhelmingly committed against Jews. And this is a plan that has a variety of elements to it. We don't have time to go through it now. Uh, 60 pages worked of, of ideas and proposals worked out over six months with about 1,000 stakeholders. Yeah, very, very important story. Glad that you raised that. Uh, and for my favorite story, first, I'm a little annoyed at uh, Philip Bump that beat me to it because I was going to go with the chapstick, too. Told you. But, <laughs> but uh, in keeping with the theme, let's stick with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let's say my second favorite story of the week is, uh, I, first, I do not understand, Scott, why Kevin McCarthy would choose Marjorie Taylor Greene to preside, ever to preside over the House of Representatives given her reputation, given her background, given her uh, propensity for not telling the truth. But he has put her up there more than once. And I think maybe the chapstick was in the back of everyone's mind this week when Marjorie Taylor Greene was presiding, and she asked for, she of all people, asked for decorum in the House. Here's what that sounded like. The members are reminded to abide by decorum of the House. Uh, yeah, it is laughable for Marjorie Taylor Greene, of all people, to uh, to request decorum. And uh, the members, of course, they were mostly Democrats. In fact, I think the Democrats are the only ones there. Uh, they met her with a round, met that with a round of laughter, uh, appropriately so. And with that, again, a big thank you to Lynn Sweet, Chicago Sun-Times, and Philip Bump from the Washington Post, his new book, The Aftermath. Check it out. And Scott Wong from NBC News. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, friends, for joining us all across the land. We wish you a very great Memorial Day weekend. We will be back on Tuesday uh, talking to Congressman Adam Schiff from California. I want to talk to him uh, all about um, the Republican efforts on uh, having these committees to prove the weaponization of the federal government, uh, which which hearings don't seem to be going very well so far. Also about uh, Adam's uh, efforts to uh, get the Supreme Court uh, to adopt uh, a binding code of ethics. And Adam might also have something to say about a certain Senate race in California. Congressman Adam Schiff, next up on the Bill Press Pod. Again, have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.